So Mark chapter 10, we just heard the passage read. Um, and this is the title of this message is The Truth, as you can see, The Truth About Marriage and Divorce. And if you want to know the truth about marriage and divorce, there's no better person to ask than God's Son, right? Jesus. Um, and you need to consult the right source. But when you're consulting the right source, you need to have the right motive, and it is to learn, and it is to understand, and maybe correct a misunderstanding you have, uh, or repent of a, of a lifestyle that's not honoring or pleasing to the Lord. Um, the Pharisees came to the right source, didn't they? And they came to Jesus, you can tell in this text, but they had the wrong motive. They wanted to trap Jesus. They actually wanted to use Jesus, you know? They wanted him to give his divine stamp of approval on their unbiblical views of marriage and divorce. And Jesus, as you know, will not tolerate being used by us, right? That's not how it works. Many years ago, I received a phone call from a woman in a church that I was serving in, a rather large church, and I was serving along with many other pastors. And this lady called me up. Um, I was a college pastor, hardly ever get any calls, you know, from families from moms and dads, unless they're angry at something I said or didn't said about their college student. Um, but she called me and she said, hey, look, I'm interested in you performing the wedding ceremony for me and my fiance. And I'm like, wow, I've only done a couple of those, you know. Yeah, I was chomping at the bit. I need experience. And so I said, yeah, that's great. Um, we need to meet up. And she said, well, why don't we need to meet up? And I said, well, I want to talk to you and your fiance and get to know you and hear your testimony. And I could tell she was a little bit put off by that, a little bit annoyed, maybe irritated a little bit. And she said, well, all right, you know, I can, I can carve out some time this week after work and we can meet in a restaurant, just the three of us. I said, great, let's go. So I met them for dinner at a restaurant and I learned very quickly this was going to be one of those very awkward uh, pastoral meetings. And many of you aren't pastors, so, but maybe you know what I'm talking about, an awkward meeting. You just tell this is not going anywhere good. This is just going to tank and go south. Because when she showed up, she wanted to talk about the ceremony, how many bridesmaids, uh, you know, what time, where's it going to be at the venue, do we have the unity candle, the mixing of those colored sands, and I'm like, whoa, 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 hang on, time out. We'll, we'll get to all of that, you know, I don't know a lot about that, I can give you my opinion, uh, but I'm most concerned to hear your story. How did you guys meet? Uh, I want to hear your salvation testimony. How, how is it that you came to encounter Christ, and when did you begin to follow Jesus, and tell me about the gospel message that you heard and you believed, and... She's looking at me and her eyes are getting narrow and she looks at her fiance and there's a look of fear in her eyes and said, and I said, I'll start with you, bro. Tell me, man, when did you, when did you start following Jesus? Um, and he says, I, I beg your pardon. And I said, um, okay, maybe that wasn't clear. You know, I'll rephrase it. I said, share with me when you were converted. Um, how did you become a Christian? And he said, oh yeah. He said, well, so I've been going to church with her now for like a month. That's all he said. <laughs> And I'm like, okay. And I looked at her, um, <laughs> and she looked at me, and I can tell she's getting more annoyed. And I said, look, guys, I, I'm honored that you asked me to perform the, the wedding ceremony. That's an honor for a pastor to be able to do that. I'm, I feel flattered in some ways. But I want you to know I'm a pastor, and I feel the spiritual weight of responsibility um, to just make sure that you guys are both on the same page spiritually. That's my first concern. The Bible says do not be unequally yoked. You know that whole yoke image? If there's two oxen that are pulling a yoke, that's good. If there's an oxen and a kitten, not good, okay? Planning is going to be all messed up. So I said, I want to make sure you guys are both on the same page spiritually because I knew her and she was a professing believer and she had a testimony that I'd heard and so I wanted to, to hear his. And so uh, she said this. She said, 
he goes to church, we're both Christians. And I said, well, well I understand that, but, I, but I, I, I want to talk to him about it. And I said, well, tell me, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you, how's that happen? And he said, well, you know, you, you read your Bible and, and you pray uh, and you go to church. And he gave me kind of the pat answer that every false religion in the world teaches. I mean, no offense to any false religions, that's what they teach. You do this, you do that, you do this, God accepts you, right? You clean your life up, you know, you work harder, do better, try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, change your life, turn over a new leaf, all the New Year stuff, and then ta-da, you're in the kingdom. Um, but that's the answer that he gave me. And uh, he mentioned something about, you know, it's hard, but when we wake up together on Sunday and we can get the snooze button turned off, then we go. And I'm like, um, so hang on a minute. I said, I want to ask you something personal. I said, I don't want it to be any more awkward than it already is. Are you guys living together? And he said, yeah, yeah, we're living together. And she's like looking down. I said, well, okay. Um, I said, I want to ask you a deeply personal question, you know, about to go deep here. And I said, I don't want you to be offended, but I have to ask this. You're asking me to perform your wedding ceremony. And uh, already I have some concerns. I said, are you guys sleeping together? Are you, you guys are like, man, this is, I brought my kid today. Just, just hang on. This is important. I said, are you guys being sexually intimate with one another? And he said, yeah, all the time, you know. I said, okay. And he said, you know, I feel a little bit bad about it, but, uh, you know, we moved in together. I still have my apartment. And I said, okay, you moved in together. There's no, like, financial crisis that you felt like. He said, no, I still have my apartment. It was her idea. She thought it would bring us closer together. And he said, I feel a little bit bad about it, but we're getting close. So, man, this, this conversation's going, going south really fast. Um, <laughs> and I can tell she's getting really, really uncomfortable. Um, in fact, she said, you know what? Um, I, think, I think it's best we just, this is probably not going to be the right, the right fit for you to, to do our, our ceremony, so we'll just leave and maybe we can follow up later. I mean, the appetizer hadn't even arrived yet, man. And it's over. The meeting's over. Uh, and so I left and I went home and honestly, I was a little bit unsettled and a little bit irritated myself. I felt set up. You ever feel set up by somebody? They call you up, they want to meet with you, they want to get your advice, they want to get your counsel. Uh, but as, as a Christian, as a pastor, this happens a lot, thankfully not at this church. But people, what they really want is they want your stamp on their agenda, right? They wanted God to sanction uh, what they were doing, which they knew was unbiblical and they knew wasn't honoring to God. And they thought, you know what, if I can get a pastor um, to go ahead and say, this is great, I'm going to do your wedding, we'll be good. I mean, she, she, they could have gone to a justice of the peace and he would have had no problems, no awkward questions, you know, nothing embarrassing, nothing unsettling for them. Uh, and he would have done their wedding wherever they wanted to, you know, at the courthouse. But she wanted God to stamp his approval on their agenda. And so I, I went home that night and told my, told my wife about it. And it just bothered me, you know. And then it, it, I, I'm a night owl. I stay up super late. And right around midnight, I started getting all these texts from her. Man, <laughs> I, she called me things, guys. I'm pretty sure. I don't even know what they mean. Um, I don't know if she was drinking. She was, some of it was belligerent. She was like off the charts angry. Not just annoyed, not just irritated, like irate, angry. Sending me text, how could you? I've never been so humiliated and embarrassed in all my life. How can you consider yourself to be a Christian, let alone a pastor? He was trying so hard to be a Christian. You're pushing him away. I mean, it went like 20 texts. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I shut my phone off. I went to bed. I got up the next morning. We were having a staff meeting at the church. So I, uh, 
You know, it was one of those flip phones. It wasn't a smartphone. So I typed up all her text, printed out a couple of copies, and shared it with the pastors. And I'm like, look, did I do something wrong here? And they're like, oh, she called you? She called you too? Like, she called all of us. We said no. We knew the situation. And I'm like, hey, thanks for the memo, man. So I was pretty much her last resort. I was her last resort to push her agenda through um, and get her and her fiance married. And, and I, I just wasn't having it. She, called the, she may have thought she called the right pastor, but thankfully, by God's grace, I was the wrong pastor because I was asking hard questions. You know? And these Pharisees came to Jesus kind of in the same way that that girl came to me, that lady came to me. They had an agenda. They wanted God to stamp it. And look, their whole view of marriage and their whole view of divorce was wrong. But it was the culturally prevalent view of the day. Uh, and that's our outline today. I really wanted to show you. So the truth about marriage and divorce, and divorce from this passage, four points. Don't, don't panic on me. That doesn't mean like a two-hour sermon or anything, okay? We're going to go through these quick. So number one, what do we see in this passage? What's the truth about marriage and divorce? Truth number one, Scripture is king, okay? You have an opinion. Maybe I have an opinion. The culture certainly has an opinion. But all of that needs to be submitted to the final authority, which is God's word, right? And that's what Jesus tells him right off the bat. Scripture's king. Secondly, marriage is a covenant. I'm going to tell you what that means and what that doesn't mean. Third, divorce is amputation. And fifth, all of this, marriage, everything, all points and paints really a beautiful picture of God's unconditional, one-way, covenantal, always and forever, unbreaking love for us in Jesus Christ. So that's what this marriage is about. Um, you've probably seen some of the troubling, uh, startling statistics about marriage in America, same ones that I have, right? Uh, most marriages in America today, at least 50%, it's debated now by sociologists and whatnot, but probably at least 50% of marriages in America end in divorce. They end in divorce. Now, some people look at those stats and they panic and they say, okay, we need to just throw this whole marriage experiment just out the window. It didn't work. It's failed. It's scaring young people. Other people say, look, we've got to tighten down the hatch here. We've got to make it harder to divorce. Uh, we've got to make it illegal to divorce. It used to be, did you know that in America? It used to be illegal to divorce somebody. Um, we'll get back to that in a little bit. Um, so I don't know what the divorce statistics were like in Jesus' day. No scholars really with any degree of certainty can, can guess that. But I'll wager they weren't probably as bad as America's were. So what should our reaction be when they see these stats? Well, it should be this. We need to ask Jesus, hey, tell us about marriage. Teach us about marriage and divorce. And that's what they did. The, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him, but listen, I got to be honest. They did not come to Jesus because they trusted him. They didn't come with humility. They didn't come with a teachable spirit. They didn't come willing to have their views um, critiqued. They didn't come willing to have their views challenged. And all of that's a bad idea, by the way. If you're a Christian, you, you bring your opinions, you bring your presuppositions to the Word, to the Holy Spirit, and say, Lord, teach me. Uh, like the psalmist says, uh, look at my heart, see if there's any wicked way or wrong way in me, and correct it. For God's sake, do that for me because I'm fallen, I'm a human, and I know I have mistakes, I have blind spots. We have cultural blind spots. Everyone in this room has cultural blind spots that we don't see, and we need God's help, and we need each other's help to see them and correct them. So they came to Jesus, but listen, they didn't come to be taught. They came to confront Jesus, and to be honest with you, they came to trap him. That's what the text says. That word trap's really sinister. It's the same one used of Satan earlier in Mark's gospel. They had sinister motives. 
And some people surmise that this is uh, Perea, the area they were in. And do you know who wore the crown in that area? Herod the Great. And do you remember the story about Herod back in Mark 6? Herod divorced his wife and stole his brother Philip's wife and married her, which was unbiblical, clearly. And do you know who called him on the rug? You remember? John the Baptist, preacher of righteousness and repentance. And guess what? Him challenging King Herod about his unbiblical views of marriage and divorce got him thrown in prison, and eventually he forfeited his life, right? I'm sure the Pharisees are thinking, we want Jesus gone, we want him dead. You know what? Maybe Herod can do it for us. If we can just get him to publicly say his views are the same as John the Baptist. But Jesus is, is, uh, Jesus is, is pretty wise, isn't he? <laughs> he's as, as wise as a serpent and he's a, as harmless as a dove, so to speak. So he calls them on their... He calls them on their agenda, and he asked them a question, which is really cool. Look what he says here. So the Pharisees came up in order to test him and ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And this is point one, scripture is king. Don't you love that? This is Jesus, the son of God. If he had an opinion uh, that mattered, he would give it. And he certainly does, and it's an infallible, uh, inerrant opinion. But do you know what Jesus does? He points them back to the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is submitting all of his thoughts and views on marriage to the Old Testament, to Scripture. Don't you love that? Doesn't that instruct you? You think your opinion's important? Jesus pointed them back to the Word. Scripture's king. It was then, and it is now. He points them back, and he says, Hey, um, what, what does Moses say? And it's really interesting here, because the one place that the... Pharisees go to is Deuteronomy 24, which was this obscure, kind of tucked away, almost hidden passage, uh, which was a concession about divorce. This is just a passage that teaches about divorce, and the, and the Pharisees go right to it as if that's the whole, that's the warp and the woof of teaching from God's word about marriage and divorce. Listen to what they say. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. You can almost hear in the language they're using, their interpretation of that passage, which was wrong, as we'll see in a minute. Moses said you could write a piece of paper, stick it in her hand, send her away. Almost like this disdain. This is a man's world, and back then it was even unbiblical for a woman to divorce. I shouldn't say unbiblical. It wasn't taught in Judaistic culture for a woman to be permitted to divorce her husband, even if he committed adultery on her. But a man could. See, this was a man's world back then. And they said, yeah, a man can divorce his wife if he finds an indecency in her. He can just write her certificate and send her away. And it's interesting what Jesus says. We'll get to this later. But he says, um, God created them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Isn't that interesting? Do you see the contrast there? This is just an aside, okay? They said, send her away. And Jesus said, hold fast to her. That's God's design. Isn't that interesting? The contrast there. But first, he says, Scripture is king. And so they want to play. They want to play fast and loose with Scripture. Jesus says, you come to the wrong guy. Or maybe you come to the right guy. Let's talk about Deuteronomy. And let's talk about it. Let's see it. So this is the passage they went to, okay? Let's read it together, okay? When a man... Take, this, is, this is one long sentence. This is the longest sentence you'll ever read in the Bible. <laughs> Check this out. If you're into grammar, this is going to bother you. When a man... Loves a woman. I'm sorry, I had to. <laughs> Come on, we needed a break. This is getting serious. When a man takes a wife and marries her 
If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, we'll talk about that in a minute, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. See, I told you that was a long sentence. Punctuation mark. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. See, here's how the Pharisees approach this passage. They're asking Jesus about marriage and divorce, and Jesus says, what does Moses say? And they go to this passage that is basically a concession. This is a passage that says, look... uh, Go back to Genesis and you see God's design for marriage is permanence, right? It's a union, flesh and blood, separate no more, joined together, united forever. What God has joined together, let no man separate. But the reality of a fallen world with fallen hearts, fallen bodies, fallen relationships is divorce happens, right? So God, in His grace, accommodated that reality. This is a concession. I would even say it this way. If somebody came to you and they said, hey, bro, I want to be a pilot. Will you teach me um, how to fly an airplane? And you gave them a crash landing manual, right? Would that be a good way to teach somebody what flying an airplane is all about? No. That would be like worst case scenario, bro. You're up there flying this thing. Things go south. Both engines quit. And you got in the event of a water landing, you know, Um, But that's not going to help them learn how to fly a plane. That's not going to teach them what the design of the airplane was about, right? So the Pharisees, when they want to talk about marriage, they want to talk about divorce, so they go to this passage. But what Jesus is going to do, he's going to send them back further. He said, you're going in the right direction, but you didn't go back far enough. This is just a concession. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, about divorce being an amputation. Uh, This is the instruction manual on how to crash land a plane if things go south. This is not the go-to passage on what marriage is or really even what divorce is, okay? But yet, this is, this is where they wanted to, to go. Deuteronomy chapter 24 does not command divorce. It permits it. And listen, guys, there's a big, huge, gaping difference between those two things, right? Huge difference that I think a lot of Christians sometimes either neglect, ignore, or they're just totally ignorant of it. And that's what we, want, we have to talk about One man said this regarding Deuteronomy 24 and the false interpretation of it that the Pharisees gave. He sums it up like this. This was how the leaders in that day interpreted this. Hey men, if you want to divorce your wife for any reason, go right ahead, but make sure and write her a certificate of divorce so it's legit. That's the wrong interpretation. This is the real meaning of this passage. Husband, You better think twice before you reject your wife. Remember that once you have put her away and she has become the wife of another, you cannot afterward take her back, not even if her new husband divorces her or dies. This is basically a protection for the victims of divorce, which so often were women. This is God protecting the dignity, preserving the dignity of women who were a victim in that day of men divorcing them for any reason, right? So here's the deal. In Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought on this because this word uh, 
Let me see it here. Can you see this word up here? Um, indecency. It's kind of a, it's not really an ambiguous word. In other parts of the Old Testament, it definitely meant adultery or moral failure. But they tried to find some wiggle room, and there were two schools of thought. One school of thought said that indecency means um, she's physically repugnant. She got ugly. You know, I'm, I'm just being dead serious. This is what the views were. Or she burnt your toast. She can't make coffee. She can't keep the house clean. That was one interpretation school of thought. And most of the Pharisees held to that. The other school of thought was much more conservative, and it was this means a moral indecency, and that means that a wife has been unfaithful to her husband and committed adultery. So Jesus knows those are the two competing schools of thought, and they're trying to trap him on the horns of a dilemma here. But Jesus is not having it. That's why, that's why he sent them back further. See, the Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce, but Jesus wanted to talk about design. Um, and, and Jesus is honoring God's design here for marriage. He's not lowering the standard. That's what, he wanted. That's what they wanted Jesus to do, to lower the standard. Um, the Pharisees of the day were basically coming to Jesus, and they were asking this question. If you have kids, you know this. Kids want to know, how far can I go, right? How close to the line can I come without actually crossing it? But that's the wrong question. The question Jesus wants them to ask is, how can I honor and exalt God's design for marriage? Number one, what is God's design for marriage? They think they already know, they don't. But secondly, how do we honor that? How do we maintain that? How do we keep that? Um, that's, why, that's why they're coming. They want to know how close to the line they can get without crossing it. Um, so this is not really a, this is not a bridge. This is a barrier that God is giving in Deuteronomy 24. So he points them back to the word. Jerry Bridges has a great quote. He says, don't believe everything you think. You cannot trust yourself to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word. It's good, isn't it? Don't believe everything that you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word. So Jesus is not going to co-sign on their, uh, on their loan here. He's not. He's not going to let them use him. Jesus is pointing them back and he's going to correct, um, he's going to correct their unbiblical notions of divorce. So that's point number one. Scripture is king. Point number two, marriage is a covenant. Now look what Jesus says here. He takes him all the way back to Genesis, and he quotes the two most important passages. Genesis 1.27, which talks about uh, God created them in his image. Male and female, he created them. Man and woman, he created them, right? And then he quotes chapter 2, verse 24, which says, For this reason that God made them male and female, um, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, I showed you last week, my math skills aren't that good. You remember that? Um, and, and they're still not good when I look at this verse because Jesus is saying one plus one equals one. Right? That's why the Bible says marriage is a mystery. It's a mystery because two people are becoming one. In fact, whenever I'm doing a wedding ceremony, if I do the premarital counseling, I never got to much of it with that couple, but when I get to it, I tell them, look, you're going to hear a lot of strange advice especially from her parents usually. They want to kind of control sometimes the wedding ceremony. But I said, look, the three most important people at this wedding are the bride and the groom and God. You know, I'm not doing anything. I'm not really marrying you. I'm recognizing what God is doing. When it says the two shall become one flesh, that's a powerful word. That indicates there's a personal force 
present at a wedding, and it's God the Holy Spirit. He's there doing his mighty and mysterious work. Um, it's not my pronouncement that makes them husband and wife. Legally, it is. That's why a lot of pastors say, by the power invested in me, by the state of whatever I now pronounce you, husband and wife. But it's God, the Holy Spirit, who is actually uniting them together in this mystery. And the two become one flesh. That word means glue. It means stuck for good. You can't unstick that. You can't unseparate the two. So that's what covenant is all about. And what does that mean? Man, that has radical implications. It means, number one, Solomon, the wisest king in the Old Testament, his 700 trophy wives did not please God. God was not happy with that. You know what else it means? It means that when two men uh, try and join together in marriage, that's not pleasing to God. No, the Bible's very clear. Or two women, for that matter. It doesn't matter what the state says. You know, marriage laws are not federal, they're state. Um, So even when a state says, hey, we're going to make same-sex marriage legal, doesn't matter. Uh, It doesn't matter what the state says or what any book says. This is the book that matters. And God says, one man, one woman for life. So um, polygamy is unbiblical. Same-sex marriage is unbiblical. It's not that God, uh, God hates those people. It's that he hates what that represents. And he still does. Still does. This is a, a celebrity some of you may know. Paul Newman. Check this out. Paul Newman said this years ago, and I'm a big Paul Newman fan. He's one of my favorite actors. Uh, but he didn't quite get it right on marriage, did he? Look at this. Husbands and wives should have separate interests, cultivate different sets of friends, and not impose on the other. You can't spend a lifetime breathing down each other's necks. How about that? But listen, guys, I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now, does that not reflect what many people in our culture believe about marriage? That's why they have prenups. I mean, most people enter the marriage covenant without any seriousness at all about keeping it. Those vows for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, um, in good times and in bad, what else is there? Health, poor, all that. That doesn't mean anything to most people. That's why, honestly, can I be transparent here for a minute? Sometimes I'll do, and I've done a lot of weddings now. It's like, I'm 43 years old. I can't say I'm young anymore, I guess, but I've done a bunch of weddings, probably 15 or 16 weddings. And I always, always tell them when they ask about vows, I say, look, I'm not going to prevent you or forbid you from writing your own vows, but I want to discourage it. Uh, because if you come back with those vows and I read them, um, and they're not up to what I think the Bible says, you can do those vows, but I'm going to introduce some more traditional vows too because I feel an obligation as a pastor to do that. And a lot of the times when they write their own vows, they come back and you know what? They indicate they're not really understanding the nature of covenant because here's what most vows say. Check this out. I love you with every fiber of my being and, and, and you complete me uh, and, and you had me at hello. And, and there's all this stuff about how they feel right now. How I feel right now about you is this and this and it's so magical and wonderful and, you know, like a Disney fairy tale movie or something. But that's not covenant love, guys. Listen, it's assumed they feel that way right then or they wouldn't be there getting married, right? No, 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 no. Listen, covenant love is not about how you feel right now. It's not. Covenant love is about how you promise to behave and act in the future when you don't feel that way, and you won't. There will be days when you don't feel that way. There may be months when you don't want to feel that way, or when you don't feel that way. In fact, there may be years, and that's the power of covenant. It says this, it says this, I am pledging myself unconditionally to you forever. 
regardless of how I feel, regardless of how you look, whether you burn my toast or burn my coffee, or whether you get ugly, or whether you, you know, your body changes shape, none of those, those things are peripheral, marginal, irrelevant. The covenant is the power of a marriage. And that's why when I'm doing premarital, man, I really hammer that covenant. And I tell people at a wedding too, I'm like, look, I'm glad you're all here today. And something really deep, mysterious, and profound is about to happen here. God's about to unite this young couple here, or old couple, whoever it is, uh, unite them in, in, in holy matrimony. And you thought you were coming just as guests, but you're not. You're actually witnesses. You're witnesses to a covenant pledge, and God's going to hold you responsible to hold them responsible to this pledge. That's what a covenant is. A covenant doesn't mind who holds the people accountable to the standard they're making. Now, most people don't believe that. Listen, that makes people panic when you talk about that, because I'm telling you right now, we are living in an anti-covenantal mindset age. That makes people panic. They're all about, I want my options open. I want an escape hatch. I want a prenup of some kind. I want to get out of this deal if things go south. And God says, no. No, 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 no. That's not what covenant love is. That's not an accurate picture of God's love for you and Jesus. That's why God hates divorce, the Bible says. We'll talk about that in a little bit. There's a, it's permissible in certain situations, but God still hates it. Why? Because of what it does to the picture of God's love for us. It distorts it. Covenant love is not based on how you feel about somebody right now. No, when you leave and you cleave, you're bonded together for good. And God says that's always the way that it's been. That was God's design from the very beginning. And don't you know that when the Pharisees heard that, it made them bristle. Because listen, there was a no-fault divorce pretty much in effect in Israel. And Jesus was challenging them, and they did not like it. But there's nothing they could do about it because... Jesus pointed them back to the Word, and it was irrefutable. His logic, his logic was irrefutable. Now, we want loopholes. We want exit strategies. Um, but that's not what a covenant is. And look, beyond that, a covenant is you are sharing yourself with somebody. You are sharing your deepest, most vulnerable secrets with a person. You know, I used to giggle when I would read in the Old Testament, and Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, they were naked and they were unashamed. I was like, they're naked, they're naked. But you know what that means? It means much more than just physically naked. I mean, that... Man, what does... I don't want this to be awkward or embarrassing, but when you're naked with somebody, man, it's just... That's the most vulnerable that you'll ever be in your life. And there's a reason that God uses that picture to describe a marriage. It's like you can show your weaknesses. You can show your ugly, the ugliest part of you, and yet that other person sees you to the bottom and yet loves you to the heights. That's the power of a covenant. Man, there's strength and power in that to say, look, no matter what, I'm not going anywhere. You had me at hello. You can say that, but say, no matter what, you're still going to have me. Because that's what Jesus said when he was up on the cross. He didn't look down at people and say, you're so lovely. You're just my body type. I can't wait to die for you. No. No. It wasn't the nails that kept him up there, guys. It was his love. That's what the cross is. He says, no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere because my love for you is not based on anything you do or anything you are. It's based on me. That's what a covenant pledge says. And that's why, by the way, I'm just going to throw this in for free since we're talking about it. If marrying somebody, you are being the most vulnerable that you've ever been, You're, you're sharing your deepest secrets and longing, the things that are most important to you. That's why marrying somebody with a different faith commitment will never work. 
It will never work. If Jesus is at the center of your life and you want to pledge your love to somebody for, uh, forever on this earth and you bring up the thing that is most important to you and they yawn or they laugh, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. That's not just a rule that God gave us to frustrate us. That's protection. It's protection that will never work. And you say, well, I know so-and-so. Look, I know there's instances of somebody having a, a marriage day conversion, all right? I've heard those stories too, but that's like playing Russian roulette. Just because you pulled the trigger and you didn't die doesn't mean go play the game, right? I was telling you as your pastor because I love you. I care about you. So that's point number two. Um, and look, let, let me just say this too. While we're talking about love, love is not just a feeling, okay? It, it involves a feeling. It's certainly not less than that, but it's much more than that. You know when Jesus said, love your enemies? He wasn't saying feel a certain way about them. You guys know that's the same word for love, by the way, in the New Testament, in the Greek. He said, when he said, love your enemies, he followed up with, hey, look, if your enemy tells you to uh, go one mile, what did he say to do? Feel really good about that mile that you're going to go. That's not what he said. He said, go two. And by the way, do you know that? This is for free too. If you were a Jew and a Roman soldier came and took their armor off and threw it down in front of you and said, look, carry this armor for me. Law required for a Jew to carry the armor of a Roman soldier one mile. How humiliating would that be? Wouldn't that just irritate you if you were a Jew? And they're like, here you go, bro. It's the law. Carry it a mile. You know what Jesus said to do? Carry it two miles. Dang. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Serve your enemies. So love, the context of the New Testament, is an action. Serve your enemies. So when we're pledging love to one another, that means not just I feel a certain way, but I'm pledging, uh, I'm pledging to do something. I'm pledging to act a certain way. For God so loved the world that He gave. He did something. It was an action. And you can look at all the 13 verbs in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is bam, 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 bam. No, none of them are nouns. They're all action verbs. Love does this and behaves this way and responds this way. Never keeps a record of wrongdoing. Is patient. Da, 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 da. It's really interesting. So just while we were there, I wanted to throw that in. We, we're so Disney-eyes today, guys. We really are. Just don't buy that lie. I feel, I feel a certain way about this person. Well, that, that's, that's you feeling a certain way about that, pro, that person. That may not be covenantal love, you know? So here's the other thing that Jesus says. Um, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Do you realize to a Jew what that would sound like? Jews prioritize the relationship of parents to children. That was everything to them. Everything to them. For Jesus... To remind them what Moses said here, what God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. That would have blown them away because he's saying marriage is a relationship that you must prioritize. It's the most, human, uh, most in, important human relationship in a family, the husband and the wife. See, when, when God put man and woman in the garden, he didn't put a parent and a child. He put a husband and a wife, Right? And he said, you prioritize that. If you prioritize any other relationship, if you're married, over your marriage to your spouse, it will weaken your marriage and everything else will be weak. But if you prioritize that relationship and strengthen it, see, most people think, well, then my kids will suffer. No, they won't. Don't buy that lie. God knew what he was doing. Listen, when I prioritize my relationship with Sarah, my six kids aren't suffering, guys. Listen, they're not getting neglected. No, that makes them flourish. 
that strengthens them. When they see a picture of what true love, sacrifice, deference, when they see that lived out, I can go out into the world strengthened. But if your marriage is weak, it doesn't matter how strong your relationship with your kids are. It's going to be defective, I promise you. So point number three, we've got to hurry here. I'm trying, I promise. Point number three, divorce is amputation. Divorce is amputation. And we go back to Deuteronomy 24. And I know many of you want to know, okay, so what does the Bible actually teach about divorce? Well, it, it teaches that God hates divorce, right? Malachi 3, we know that. Teaches that divorce is very damaging and destructive to the spouses, to the children, to people who are watching the distorted picture of the gospel and God's love in Christ. We know that. But I will say this, because the Bible says this. God loves his creation, and the reality is that a lot of times marriages don't work. And it's very clear here, those situations where sometimes a divorce um, can salvage. Uh, salvage is the wrong word. Sometimes a divorce... Uh, is the right course of action to take. And Jesus gives very clear instructions here on what those are. Check this out. Verse 10, And in the house, his disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There's another parallel passage, same event, but just a different angle. In Matthew chapter 19, and Jesus is very clear there when he's teaching his disciples, if a couple divorces for any other reason other than marital infidelity, which is adultery, uh, then, then they're separating for unbiblical reasons, and it's wrong. That's what he says. But if there has been marital infidelity, if one spouse has committed adultery on the other spouse, then Jesus... Uh, recognizes that that's a reality in the world and God permits it. But you should view divorce as amputation, right? Divorce shouldn't be as easy as taking your clothes off. It should be as hard as taking your arm off, right? If you went to a doctor because you had a scratch on your finger and the doctor said, got to take it off. Andy, would that fly? <laughs> what doctor in their right mind is going to stay in clinical practice if every person that comes in with a wound, he's like, we've got to take it off. got to cut off your arm. We've got to cut off your leg. We've got to cut off your finger. We've got to cut off your ear. No. But I will say this. In some cases, when you come in and you've got gangrene and it's eating up your, your limb, your extremity, your, your finger, or your toe, in some cases, if you don't take that off, you will die. You will die. So in some cases, divorce can actually save your life, so to speak, right? But it should be last resort most drastic measure having to be taken. Does that make sense? That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus is saying here. And listen, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul wrote that letter to the Corinthian church, and he also said this. There's a, there's a similar grounds for divorce, and it is if there's a couple that are married and an unbelieving spouse abandons the believing spouse, walks out on her or him, and leaves the marriage. Because if that's the point, if that's the case, the the believing spouse left behind says, what the heck? What am I supposed to do? I was trying my best. I was praying. I was showing love and patience, and they left. And God says, in that case, then the spouse who was abandoned is free to remarry. Just the same way that the spouse who was sinned against by adultery is free to remarry. Um, so I've always said this, just to, just to help you know from, from my perspective as a pastor, I use like a triple A, okay? 
If you have to know the bottom line on divorce, when is it allowed? When is it permitted? Triple A, okay? Adultery, abandonment, and then I throw in abuse because I consider abuse to be abandonment. And I think a couple should, at, at the very least, separate until there can be protection in place. I would never counsel any spouse who's in danger of, of abuse to remain in that situation, to separate for a time, come to me, find some safe living arrangements. So, and we can talk about that later, if that's a conversation you want to have or question you have. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. But divorce should be viewed as, um, it should be viewed as amputation. In 1969, governor, he was then governor, Ronald Reagan of California made what he later admitted was one of the biggest mistakes of his political career. And look, I love Ronald Reagan. He's one of my favorite presidents. Maybe he was yours too. But he signed into existence the nation's first no-fault divorce law. Do you know what that means? Have you heard that? Maybe some of you younger people. Let me help you out here. No-fault divorce, it means this. You can walk into a court of law and say, I don't like being married anymore. It's too hard. I want out. And they're like, okay, no problem. You don't have to prove there was a fault on the side of your spouse. You don't have to prove there was unfaithfulness. You don't have to prove you were abused. You don't have to prove they're uh, beating the kids or, or whatever, right? You just says, I'm tired of this. It's not working for me. We have irreconcilable differences or, or we're incompatible with one another or the marriage is just going south and, and it's just, I'm over it. I found somebody else prettier or whatever. In the state, because of the no-fault divorce laws, which all 50 states have adopted now, it is so easy to get a divorce. And listen, that's why we don't look to the state to tell us about the power of marriage, right? We look to God's Word. It's so easy. You can get a divorce for any reason at all. And it was the same as it was in, in the time of Jesus here. Uh, so Ronald Reagan looked back on that, and he said, that was the worst mistake that I ever made. And I agree with him. Even though it was inevitable, every nation is going to drift in that direction that's losing Christ and, and the Bible and the gospel is the center of their existence. So here's the, here's the final point, guys. First point was Scripture is king. Second point, marriage is a covenant. Third point, divorce is amputation. Um, and here's the final point. All of this points to Jesus. What is marriage anyway? All marriage is, and, and it's interesting, in the very beginning of the Bible, there's a marriage. And in the very end of the Bible, there's a marriage, right? Both of them are taking place in a garden. The very first marriage is between a man and a woman. Do you know what the very last marriage is? The marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're the bride. If you trust Christ, you are the bride, and you are the recipient of true, uh, powerful, covenantal love. Because Jesus on the cross pledged himself to you forever. He said, no matter what, I'm not going anywhere, I'm staying. That's what marriage is a picture of. All of this is about Jesus. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important for us to talk about it in ways that are right. Look what Ray Ortland said. He said, Marriage points beyond itself to the endless love of Jesus for us all. Human marriage has always been intended by God to serve as a prophetic whisper of the eternal marriage. If we love the preaching of the gospel from pulpits, then we also love the display of the gospel in marriages. Churches must not be neutral or casual about what so rejoices the heart of God. Why does God love marriage so much? It's because of the picture that it paints of His love for us and the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you say, look, I'm in a hard marriage right now, um, and it's challenging, and I want out. You know, I don't, I don't want to stick this out. I don't want to do it. It's too hard. It's too painful. It's too agonizing. Listen, guys, 
the power for our earthly marriages are to look at Christ's heavenly marriage. Um, when you look at Christ loving you, when you look at Christ being tormented for you, when you hear him on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look, that will empower you. That will melt your heart. And that will help you to just plant a seed of, I'm going to invest in this marriage. God has given me, if he can do that for me, if he can lay down his life for me, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to put aside my preferences for the sake of my spouse. That's what true covenantal gospel-powered love is. Um, let, me, let, me, let me end this message this way. I'm going to, I'm going to quote my wife. This is funny. I was, uh, I was studying some stuff on the computer, and I was looking for something that I wrote, and something popped up, and I'm like, man, that's good. I'm like, dang, that's real. Did I write that? And, it's, and the document said Sarah Clayton. I'm like, I should have known. I didn't write that. But I'm going to read this, okay? Probably embarrass her. Um, she said, the Bible never points us toward each other for ultimate fulfillment. In fact, it warns us against that. Your spouse cannot be your soulmate. You will break them. The weight of your worship is too much. It will crush your spouse. Husbands and wives are poor saviors. We never marry the right person, she says. I read that, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Was that like a hidden document? <laughs> Sarah's ravings against Tommy. No. She said, we never marry the right person. And guess what? Our spouse didn't marry the right person either. There is no right person out there. Each of us are far more selfish and self-centered than we could have ever imagined. Marriage is the perfect school to teach us this. The good news is that there is a true love out there for all of us, but not the one Hollywood sells us. Our hearts were made for true love, and people are desperately seeking it in each other, not knowing it will destroy their lives. We will always fall victim to this lie until we are united with our first and truest love, Jesus Christ. That's what marriage is all about. It's a picture of the one-way, unconditional, always and forever, unbreaking, uh, covenantal love that Jesus Christ has for us. That's the way Jesus loved us on the cross. So let's pray.